Welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the world around us. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. A lot of people listening to this episode will know the name and the work of today's guest, but for those who don't, Linda Villarosa is a brilliant storyteller, a journalist, author, editor, and educator. She's a New York Times Magazine contributing writer where she covers race, inequality, and health. Her 2018 cover story for the magazine, titled Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis, was nominated for a National Magazine Award. And it was that article that first prompted me to connect with her to participate in a Mission Forward conversation we had a few years back. I invited Linda back to Mission Forward because of a story she recently published called Black Lives Are Shorter in Chicago, My Family's History Shows Why. Reading that story, a very personal account of her own family's journey through Chicago transported me through time, but it also reinforced some of the most essential public health issues of this time. And just as this episode is being released, folks across the country are trying to make sense of new CDC mask guidelines. And it's clear just how far our public health system has to go on issues of equity and inclusivity. I can't think of many folks better than Linda, especially paired with our co-host, Natalie Burke, to dig into this conversation. Stay tuned. Like many reporters, you have spent the last many years digging into public health disparities. But I will say your reporting is unlike any other. You draw people in to your narrative and your story. I have often said that any work of Isabel Wilkerson should be required reading. But I would like to go on the record to amend that and say that any work of Isabel Wilkerson's and Linda Villarosa's should be required reading. Well, thank you for packaging the brilliant Isabel Wilkerson um, in with me. And I one of the books that's holding up my computer is um, The Warmth of Other Suns because I have two copies. <laughs> so one can just be, uh, you know, just be near me all the time. But it's true. I mean, your article, the article that came out in... Um, it was the April, the most recent edition of the New York Times Magazine, Black Lives Are Shorter in Chicago, My Family's History Shows Why. Gosh, it felt like an extension of Isabel's writing and how much you brought us into this journey with your mom. And what an amazing journey through Chicago and through time that was. And I'd love you just to tell us a little more about that. Well, thank you for that question. My um, mother and I have been doing a little bit of a journey um, for the past few years, and we went to our family reunion in Mississippi, I guess two summers ago, and um, we drove through the various towns where um, our family had uh, migrated from, from Mississippi to Chicago. And it was really moving for me, and that really stuck with me. Then um, last year, we went to Chicago, um, where I lived until I was 10 and our family moved. 
But um, seeing my mom in, you know, where she was raised and, you know, where she had her early, you know, where she settled, uh, was settled uh, with my father when they were first married was very moving. And to see how much of that community was gone. So I never would expect a community to look exactly the same, but to see so much of it disappeared from this sort of nostalgic um, look and feel that she had given me and reminded me of um, was alarming. Then when I saw that the highest, you know, the, the largest racial gap in life expectancy was between the community where she went to high school and um, the neighborhood nine miles north was shocking. So it was sort of all synthesized when I saw that number. And I thought, how could people live 30 years less in the same large city, nine miles apart? And that's what really shaped that article for me, the, you know, my own family experience and the number. Natalie, I may ask you to prompt and and step in here because this is what we were talking about this morning of this disparity. Working and moving in public health circles, I am often frustrated and Carrie has heard me talk about this, about the narrative as to why those inequities exist. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you think the narrative is and what you actually think it should be with regard to those inequities in Black health. I feel the same frustration and um, I've spent a long time sort of behind the scenes or between the lines trying to fight against the narrative that Black communities and Black people have uh, poor health outcomes because we're all poor, uneducated, don't care. It's our fault. Um, it's your fault that you that health and wealth are um, related. And since you your communities don't have wealth, that it's your fault. And so with this story, I spent a lot of time showing the what happened to that community and those communities mm-hmm. in Chicago that was not our fault, that was institutional and structural racism that it started quite a while ago and um, it it destroyed communities and when a community loses wealth it loses hope it there's no chance to own your home it's stubbornly segregated that's when the health outcome shows up and you know there's a lowered health outcome that ended with lowered life expectancy and that also ended with you know a lot of covid when COVID happened, it was it really struck that community. And the beginning narrative of COVID was, oh, it's a virus. It doesn't discriminate. Well, like you, all of us in public health know that viruses do discriminate. And, you know, it, of course, you can say those words, but, you know, there is a lot of explanation that goes on behind that. This balance, delicate balance between what we talk about as social determinants of health and this idea of personal responsibility um, and the way that we even view what health is and how health happens. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about um, what do you think we need to do to shift people's consciousness about the production of health? How do we get people to get that piece of it? I'm not sure because a lot of us have been spending a long time trying to do this. And so, you know, my maternal and infant mortality story in 2018, I wrote that with the idea to show this is a problem of race. Okay. It has nothing, it, it not has nothing to do with poverty. Poverty makes everything worse, but this race on its own is killing black mothers and babies even middle class and people with advanced degrees, women with advanced degrees like myself can have a low birth weight or preterm um, birth baby, which, you know, raises the risk of infant and maternal mortality. So 
you know, that's what I was really trying to show in that story. And then in this story, I was trying to show that the, the social determinants of health, that in Inglewood and other communities in, on the south side of Chicago, they lack healthy food, they lack safety, they are very segregated. People don't own their own homes. It's hard to get a job. You know, jobs have gone away. It's, you know, there's pollution. The environment itself has been um, destroyed in many ways. And that is what happens, you know, that affects health, health outcomes and, and life expectancy. So then I try to take it a step further to say, well, if a community is redlined, then it just, you know, it gets systematically destroyed. If a community, you know, like my family, um, 75% of Black people um, bought homes on contract where you had no equity, you had, you didn't really own it, you could lose it at any time, that destroys people's, you know, the biggest asset that people can have is their home. And so if you can't own a home because of the systemic problem that started, you know, a century ago, then it's really not people's fault. And I was, I usually don't read the letters. I mean, I kind of sneak and do sometimes, but they really annoy me. And so many of the letters on this story were about, well, it, their personal responsibility. Somebody was talking about genetics, vitamin D, all these things. And I'm like, did you not read this? <laughs> it's kind of crystal clear. If you don't have the resources and the assets in a community that encourage good health, then health declines. And that is entwined with wealth and money. And so that's what I tried to show in the story. And I, you know, just tried to show it through this sort of lens of my family and lens of people I knew, including Eric Whitaker, who is, you know, like President Obama's really close friend, who we had the same experience. Our families came from Mississippi. He ended up, his mother was a single mother, a nurse who scraped her way to um, send her son to medical school. And he went back to the community to help out. And he realized no matter what I do here, the wealth has to change. There needs to be a, a new investment in this community. Otherwise, the health status isn't going to change. How much of this history of your family did you know before writing this story? I knew a lot of it, but um, my mother filled in many blanks. And she had been doing that beginning with our family reunion and sort of getting an Ancestry.com you know, page. Um, but she really filled it out. Also, I'm a person that likes to see a thing. So when we went back, like I remember our house, I remember my elementary school, but I had never seen her elementary school. And so she often talked about the importance of going to this wonderful elementary school, Betsy Ross, and that she went with Lorraine Hansberry to that school. So then to go back and see it boarded up and just a shadow of itself, you know, it was sad, the paint chip and this special place where not just my mom, but the playwright Lorraine Hansberry, that's where they went. That's where they learned. I had her Inglewood High School yearbook. So I looked up her page and there she was, Clara Alexander. Um, and then Lorraine, Han turn a few pages, there's Lorraine Hansberry. And then we found out Gwendolyn Brooks also, you know, went to that school. And then I have a really close friend of mine who's also from Chicago, lives in LA. And I said, did your dad go to Inglewood High School? I see his name in the yearbook. And so there's a lot of us, you know, who followed that South to Chicago trajectory, but to see what has happened to a place that was a promised land for so many is really sad to me. When you talk about Englewood, you touched on this at the top, but to give folks a little more context, 
that in Englewood, uh, very specifically in the Streeterville neighborhood, nine miles north of Englewood, 73% white, residents live on average to 90 years old. In Englewood, where nearly 95% of residents are black, people live to an average of only 60. Natalie was commenting on this this morning around how we think about how the CDC guidelines, how the U.S. responded to COVID, how they thought about who is eligible immediately for the first vaccine. And they started with individuals over the age of 75. And what that meant right at the top about who was forgotten or left off of the ability to have access to that vaccine. I also think it's important to note that, um, you know, we know that Black people um, in the United States end up with worse cases of COVID younger. So in other words, if you require hospitalization or you die from COVID, you know, for white people, it you know, the, the bulk of the cases are in the 10 year older age than they are in black people where it's 10 years younger. So we have worse COVID cases um, at a younger age. And so right there, you're seeing, you know, the, the result of what is, how this works. And I also think if you have a community where there aren't a lot of health resources because the community has been stripped, then um, you don't have a lot of clinics to get testing. You don't have a lot of testing sites. So then you don't even know that you have um, COVID. And then, you know, on the flip side, then you don't have treatment, a lot of treatment in your community. If you don't have good transportation, you don't, you know, it's, it all is a spiral. And then the vaccine, you know, African-Americans without a doubt and justifiably have, have had um, vaccine hesitancy. It makes people nervous because we don't trust the healthcare system, not because of Tuskegee or, you know, whatever, partially because of that, because what happens to you in the current healthcare system. We know that there's racism, there's discrimination against people of color, especially black people. So then you also don't have, a, you know, the hospitals have closed, health healthcare clinics have closed. So then you don't have a lot of resources to even get a vaccine. So, you know, it all sort of adds up. And so it's no wonder that there is, you know, there's a number that shows this 30-year gap in life expectancy. Well, I also think when, you know, when I looked at the CDC recommendations and phase 1A was, you know, for sort of your first responder folks and people who were living in long-term care facilities. Well, what do we know about who is disproportionately underrepresented in long-term care facilities because of socioeconomic status, but also because of cultural decisions about where we care for seniors? Right. So what's the likelihood that black people were going to be vaccinated older black people were going to be vaccinated in phase one A and then for one B to be 75 and older and life expectancy pre covid was 74.7 for black people. So you're saying 75 and older. Well, guess what? A lot of black people are already dead. And the fact that chronic conditions and that piece that you talked about 10 years younger makes so much sense because chronic conditions are kicking in at a younger age, right? So they took a very um, equal approach, but there was no equity lens analysis on how they set those phases. And to be honest about it, it seems as though state by state, life and death was being decided because some states said, well, CDC says this, but guess what? We're going to drop the bar. So, you know, do you have any reflections about how that policy or how those policies have rolled out 
Um, and what have you noticed or heard even with regard from state to state? I um, am really impressed with the way you laid that out. And it's very true. And it's not, you know, this isn't, this isn't a conversation that all often happens. And I think it's really, really important what you've said. And I think how it rolled out, well, first of all, you'll remember who was the president at the time. So at the top, there was complete chaos. And I was surprised at how bad it was. And I went back, I was reporting about um, New Orleans, um, the, the uh, Zulu Club, and how many of those um, wonderful group of Black men were dying of COVID or you know, getting really sick from COVID and many of them dying. And so I look back at what was happening at the top in the Trump administration and you know our offices of public health. And it was chaotic. It wasn't coordinated. So then it became a state-by-state situation. And it also is political. That personal responsibility lens, it depended on the state. And you were seeing that in a lot of states where it's like, well, why should we shut down? We, you know, it's your fault that you're getting sick. And that was the fear. When the the um, first statistics about racial disparities in COVID came out, there was so much fear that it's like, oh, this is going to be used against us. And that's exactly what happened. And even... And, even you remember is the the idea that there are these underlying conditions. Underlying conditions became almost a dog whistle that it's like, oh, it's your fault because you're not taking care of yourself. And it's your fault because you have diabetes. It's your fault because you're overweight. But why should we be punished? Because we have more self-control. We have more education. We know how to take care of ourselves. And I cannot tell you how enraging that was. And and hurtful. Well, because part of it too, and when, as I'm listening to you talk about it, if you had a blood pressure cuff on me, I'm sure you would see the numbers ticking up because in that there's almost this underlying message that black people are genetically inferior and black bodies are broken and black bodies are not broken. And so when we look at infant mortality and maternal mortality, and it's sort of bringing it back, it's the same type of thing. This idea that there's something wrong with Black women's bodies, and that's why we see the infant and maternal mortality, and there's no little to no consideration for these larger things. It does a disservice um, more broadly, but it does a disservice within the minds of Black people about their own health and their own expectations with regard to health. Right. And so I don't know if it, Lynn, I don't know if you've encountered it or not, but it's almost as though sometimes I encounter black communities where I've worked, um, and even especially in Mississippi where I worked extensively, where it's almost like, yes, I'm going to be diabetic. Yes, I'm going to be hypertensive. That's just the way things kind of happen here. And it becomes this expectation. What do you think is necessary to change that mindset? So that Black people recognize that there is something else available to them. I think the first thing that I, when I have this conversation that I want to say, and you know, this is not anything you don't know, but just to say it out loud, that everyone here, all three of us understand, and we know that it's really important to take care of yourself. It's really important to eat right. It's really important to do your best to exercise and to, you know, be engaged with the medical system. These things are all really important to deal with our stress. And that is, that must be said, and it's a given. But if, but most of us know that. And sometimes when I hear this sort of personal responsibility lens, it's like, we know that (laughs) this has been the drumbeat. 
And your doctor will tell you that. Your friends will tell you that. Everyone knows that. Your family wants you to stay healthy. But this other thing is really underreported. It's under-talked about. The idea that something else is going on, that it is not a genetic defect, this has been proven time and time again by scientists, and that it this is not all our fault, that there is something going on in our society itself um, that weathers away the bodies of those who are discriminated against and treated badly, and that there's something that happens in the healthcare system that's unfair, that treatment is unfair, that we live in less healthy communities, which is not all our fault. And so these conversations, I mean, I think it helps if people understand the larger context. I do talk, I have, you know, I teach at a college with mostly black and brown kids, And first day, I can hear them saying, well, you know, in my community, people, this and that, they don't take care of themselves, that. And I'm like, all right, we're going to start from a different place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I have heard you both talk about this, and I would like to pause and go one layer deeper on it, on the concept of weathering, accelerated aging by the effect of racism, the role that our environment plays on us. I'd like you both to talk a little more about that because I do want to reinforce the importance of that point and reality. Well, um, Natalie, I'm not sure what what your lens of it is, but mine is through Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who is a professor at the University of Michigan. So she coined the term weathering to refer to um, what the lived experience of being Black in America, and she's most of her scholarship has been around Black women and infant mortality, but it's the idea that because of the, you know, everything from hardcore discrimination to the microaggressions that you have to deal with day in, day out, and anything that makes life worse, um, including being poor, hurts even causes even more harm, but that weathers away the systems of the body so that you have a kind of a premature aging. So that has, um, at first, her ideas when she was first talking about them, mostly in the 90s, she was roundly criticized. But now, because we see what's happening with COVID, we see these life expectancy, um, this divergence, people are much more interested and open to her really wonderful, smart theories. The flip side of weathering is the resilience of um, black and brown people to say that although our bodies get weathered, we also weather this storm like a house in a storm. That's why I love her work because it has this twin, um, these twin themes of being hurt by what happens, but also um, being able to survive it. Well, you know, it's funny because Carrie will tell you I'm a little bit fixated with this whole thing around language and the power of language, the importance and the value of language and narrative. And in the book, Words Can Change Your Brain, they talk about how oppressive language over time actually creates that weathering effect. And in fact, it has the ability to turn on um, genetic expression for chronic disease, illness, and early death. And one of the things that as time goes on, what I recognize is that how we talk about black and brown populations how we label black and brown populations is also problematic. The language, even the word vulnerable, which this is one of the things that I talk about all the time. I was in Mississippi in a Saturday program in Sunflower County, and I had a 12-year-old say, why does everybody come in here and keep calling us weak? And I said, I never said you were weak. And she said, but you said vulnerable. And vulnerable means weak. That's the synonym. 
okay from the mouth of babes. So let's not label people and let's figure out what it means to actually change the language and change how we think and talk about these things. So I really appreciate um, the idea even of weathering more broadly because it comes through microaggressions. It comes through the commentary on hair or how articulate we are. Uh, It comes through, you know, when you're in the store and you're being followed. It comes through when you're looking for books for your children and can't find ones that are representative of your kids. Uh, and, and And it's throughout the course of a lifetime. And the fact that that's passed from generation to generation, right? So whether you're talking about generational trauma or whether you're talking about that stress, that allostatic load and how that then manifests from one generation to the next, uh, that's real. The science exists to support it. I think what we have to figure out how to do over time is how to make that science accessible to people who don't do what we do and who don't you know, read what we read so that it's easier for them to incorporate into their conversations and into the way that they understand the world. Mm, I love that. And that's what I like about the term weathering. It's easy to understand. Um, And I remember the first time I heard it from, I was interviewing Dr. Geronimus and I said, okay, I don't really know what that's like for me. And so she, she took me through it. She said, aren't you an assistant professor at a college? She said, I said, yes. And she said, "Mm, you're like a little old to be assistant professor. I was like, okay, yeah. And so then she said, who is your supervisor? I said, a white man. Who's his supervisor? Oh, a white man. Who's his supervisor? I said, oh, a white man. Then she said, tell me about your students. And I told her about, you know, a lot of my students, well, I'm not never going to call them vulnerable again, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) they have many struggles. And then she said, you have to be a mentor for all those students. And then she said, what about your level is how many people of color in your department? It's like so few. And are you, how do you deal with them? And so she started talking about this and she said, that is high effort coping because you have to, you're lifting up a lot of people. You're having to deal with people above you who are not the same as you. And I had told her a few little microaggressions. Um, And then when she sort of laid it out and made me feel that, I felt during an interview, I felt teary because I felt kind of understood by her. And it felt like, yeah. And I had had a, um, a conversation with a co- colleague who said, there's no such thing as microaggression. I don't believe in microaggression. So I have to spend my time explaining this to her. And I said, I want to tell you something. As I'm having to explain this to you, I feel my face getting hot. I feel my heart beating. My heart is racing. My, I can tell my pulse has gone up. This is what microaggressions are doing for me, your colleague and your friend. That is how real it is. I can feel the physical effect of having to explain this to you who should already know it because you are a professor at a college of predominantly people of color. Wow. So you should know this. And then I'm like, <laughs> yeah. trying to my breath. Absolutely. Uh, Linda, thank you for sharing that. And to both of you, I know we're coming to the end here, but I I need to acknowledge that that what you just said and what both of you have shared over the course of this very quick time together reinforces why we do this, right? If we think about what we can do by first deepening people's understanding, often through story and real life experiences, we can drive and change actions. And, And that's why Natalie and I do the work that we do, that so much of this comes down to a lack of understanding and empathy for 
one another. We've lost so much of humanity, not just through COVID, but over time in our society. And I just appreciate the work of both of you so much for bringing that front and center. I definitely, I would say, you know, also Linda, as, and I wanted to make sure I paid you the compliment in reading your article, one of the things, and, and language is important to me, it was beautiful. It was beautiful and it felt affirming. And we need, we need more of that. So I just really appreciate that you were able to marry that with the facts and the data and the information that tells a story in a way that is comprehensive and accessible, um, but relatable. Because as I was reading your story about Chicago, I was thinking about Queens, New York, where I grew up in a multi-generational household, right, with Jamaican immigrants and what my street looked like and what my elementary school was looking looking like and how that community and neighborhood has changed over time. So I just wanted to make sure that I actually fangirled you a little bit just to say, <laughs> you know, I really appreciated it because in reading it, I, it felt like echoes of my own past and my own history. Uh, and, and actually, I think is a great teaching tool in a sense of being able to have conversations about these things in other communities. So just thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you can talk to people and I am good with numbers, you know, and good with science, but um, in order to really have people truly understand, you have to make them feel something. So that's what I try to do is marry the two sides, I guess, of everyone's brain to say, I want you to feel, I want you to know something, but I also want you to feel something. So that's what I try to do with my work, not just to say, here's what I need you to know through science. It's like, well, here's what I need you to feel and to have empathy and to have compassion for other people. So thank you for recognizing that. I really appreciate it. And it's a big part of what we missed in this whole COVID journey. What you just said, that empathy and human connection, that willingness to care about your neighbor and your community and to do the things necessary to support each other through this, I think was lost early on, um, unfortunately. And I think we paid a really, really high price for it. So my hope is that moving forward, pieces like you wrote, conversations like we're having here, create an opportunity for us to change that moving forward um, in ways that open doors to new conversations. So just thank you for that. All right, last question before we wrap, Linda. What can you preview with us about Under the Skin? Oh boy. Well, Under the Skin is a little bit delayed because um, I guess I started in 2018 and it was supposed to be done a year ago. But when um, I worked on the 1619 project, I realized I needed to go back further in time. I had planned to start in 1850 around some uh, census data. And then I said, no, I need to go back to 1619 and talk about the effect of, you know, 250 years of enslavement on today's medical system and today's health outcomes. Then COVID happened and I ended up getting pulled into writing about it a few times. And also it informed, um, you know, the, this pandemic informed my own thinking and also supported and validated the, you know, thinking and reporting I had done. So it's going to be a very um, broad and deep look at health inequality in our country. Um, it's told through narrative. Some of it is my own. Some of it is other people. Some of it is behind the scenes at, um, of some of the stories and what happened after you know they were published. So I'm very excited about this. Um, I have a very tough editor at Doubleday and a really uh, thoughtful, attentive 
agent. And so I have a little team of people, um, but it's an intense, you know, book and I'm excited and happy that it's almost done. (laughs) Well, we look forward to reading it and learning more from you in the process. Thanks, Linda, so much for being with us today. Thank you. What an enriching, nourishing conversation. Thank you, Linda. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mission Forward. And especially thanks to Linda and Natalie for joining us. If you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend and check out other episodes and subscribe. And if you're willing, please leave us a rating or a review. They mean a lot to me and they can help our show grow. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is Blue by I Am Daylight. Thanks for your support and see you next time.